0: this is trish kendall your host for the choose and become interview series i made five critical choices on my 25-year journey to enduring success i picked up the phone which was a first choice i committed to a two-way agreement i built trust in myself and then inspired the trust of others i created community and belonging and i embrace my boundless capacity to love in this interview series my guests people who i admire share a little bit of their insight a little bit of their wisdom as it relates to these five choices in their lives and today i'm so excited to have mary dylan look at me i'm already <laughs> so mary is my friend my mentor and my cousin first cousin <laughs> first cousin and i want to say mary i think this is the first time that i'm actually saying that i know isn't that funny yeah it's like this the best kept secret it's the best kept secret our
1: mothers were mothers our mothers were sisters i mean and mothers (laughs) yes and
0: so my mom is the youngest of seven and my aunt eileen is uh mary's mom who did pass away a couple of years ago So, Mary, thank you so much for jumping on this as soon as I asked you to. Of course, I'm
1: thrilled to do it, Trish. I mean, it is kind of crazy for anybody watching this. Yes, we are first cousins who didn't know each other until about how many years ago did we decide?
0: Well, I was trying to figure this out a little more than 20 years. I would say 20, 25 years.
1: Okay, but we were adults, full grown, full grown adults. And we had not met because uh, Trish grew up in a different part of the country than my family, and none of us were really all that mobile, frankly. Uh, Trish moved to Chicago, and my mother uh, asked her to come and join us for a family Christmas uh, gathering, and the rest is history. Trish and I realized that we are so similar in so many ways, but we would have been strangers had my mom not brought us together.
0: I know, and then Mary. so I'm going to pick I'm going to make sure I pick back up where you just left later because I love our little airplane story. Yeah. (laughs) So, Okay. For now, tell my audience a little bit about you.
1: Okay. Well, I'm Trisha's cousin. Yes. That's That's the most important. Um, Let's see. So uh, I live in Evanston, Illinois. I grew up in the Chicago area. Um, My husband Terry and I have four adult kids, which uh, they live all across the country, which is pretty awesome. Um, I'm right now the executive chair of Ulta Beauty. I was the CEO for eight years and then transitioned to uh, executive chair about a year ago. I'm also on the board of, of Starbucks and KKR and Daily Harvest. So I'm doing a lot of different things, uh, but I've had a long career in business from food industry to restaurant to telecom and then ultimately into beauty. So I'm proud of that, that journey and you know, love to help teach others along the way.
0: So. Yes, I love that. And we were having a little bit of a sidebar conversation before we hit go. Uh, you also love musicals and you take my mom. Oh, yes. I have
1: found my aunt Dolores, thank God, is uh, really like a second mother to me in that we love something in particular together, which is musicals. A little song and dance, a little opera once in a while, whatever, whatever it takes. I'm threatening to take her to Italy to the opera. I better deliver the goods on that.
0: Yeah, because I think that she's going to take you up on that. I know she is. So, one of the things, Mary, we've had this conversation in so many different ways at so many different times. So, this is just more of a structured way. And one of the things we have talked about is everybody has their own definition of success. And what I'm curious about is, how do you define enduring success? What does enduring success mean to you?
1: Yeah, when I think about the phrase "enduring success, I guess maybe a way I would think about it is sustainable. You know what is sustainable in your life uh, in terms of how you're defining success? And yeah, you know, I just spoke to a group of business school students a couple of days ago about about when you have to have courage in business and make decisions that are tough and unpopular and you know, we talked a lot about that. And one of the things I realized in talking about that is that to me, to be successful for me, I've been able to, I feel like I've had to balance like what I want to do in business with how I want to be as a, as a human outside of business, right. Bring those together and be successful as a business people person that is an authentic, you know, authentically themselves. But also the enduring part is never getting myself so caught up either ego wise or even financially you know, spending ahead of my means or whatever, so that my business success, I couldn't step away from it. To be enduring, I felt like I had to have many times in my life where I said, you know what, this situation is tough, or what I'm about to do might be hard. But if it doesn't work out, it's okay, I can step back and be fine. I can be Mary Dillon, my family loves me I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, gosh, darn it, people like me. So I do think that's helped me to have this enduring kind of definition of
0: success is not getting too caught up in it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I think just think it's awesome, and, and I think about you and, and how I've seen just choices you've made in your career as well, and what you just said about being able to make choices and not being um, tied to something financially even gives you that freedom. I think that's just Right.: just, Exactly. Yeah, it's worked for me. Uh, OK, so the first critical choice I made was to pick up the phone when my sister called me almost 30 years ago now we know and and my community knows my story and 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 that first choice was very profound obviously it gave me a chance at everything that i have today but when i reflect i've made a series of first choices since then that have really impacted my success and so i'm just curious about any of the first choices that you have made that you then reflect on and say that really impacted your journey to enduring success. Right. Well, first of all, thank goodness for your sister Maria. Saint Maria,
1: I will call her for today's purposes. But all kidding aside, Trisha's story, which I didn't know until I was, got to know her as an adult, has been remarkable. And I'm so happy that her journeys have brought us together now. And, you know, I think it's so important to be able to show what's possible, right? What's possible for, for, for many of us who come from various sorts of challenges in our background. Um, for me, probably, again, this, this uh, interview has made me think a lot, and reflect a lot about things that maybe I wouldn't normally be thinking about. So first choice for me, I would say was at some point when I was pretty young, I don't know, if it was high school or it was college, I don't really know, but I realized that I had in me the drive to be, to have a better life than what I came from. And not that it was a bad life, but it was challenging in some ways, you know, being a first generation college graduate, you know, been working and supporting myself for any extra spending money, I guess I'd say, since I was like 15. And you know, feeling like there was probably more out there than my parents were able to give me. And I think at some point, but I had no role models. I didn't know anybody in business, I didn't know any CEOs. It wasn't like I knew any of that. But I think a first choice I made, I guess I would define, I would say, is embracing my ambition. Now, ambition is not a word I would have used back then. In fact, ambition is a word I want to reclaim for women as a positive word, because so often it's used as a weapon against women. And, and it's been used against me that way early in my career, once or twice, Somebody saying something about gosh, you're so ambitious and they said it in a really negative way and it hurt. But now that I'm older, I realize, no actually when people are ambitious, that's great. and if they can if they can embrace that about themselves and make a choice to your your point about how to drive and fuel that ambition for good, hopefully, that's important. Um, mm-hmm. So that was probably the first big choice, but it wasn't a conscious choice that i I didn't realize I was much older that I was making that choice. And I'd say it kind of relates to the second big time in my life where I chose, to embrace that, which is, as Trish knows, my husband Terry and I, also St. Terry. To yes, me. I was gonna say St. Maria, yeah, St. Terry. St. Maria, St. Terry, just to yeah. of them all No. Uh, but he, um, you know, Terry and I met when we were quite young. Uh, I was 19 when I asked him out on our first date, mm-hmm. by the way. We'll come back to that sometime. And uh, anyways, but we, you know, we both come from similar backgrounds and he, uh, he's actually more educated than I am. He's got a master's degree of biochemistry. He, when we got married, he was working in the drug industry, I was working in business. And it became kind of obvious early on, even before I started our family, that I was really fueled by my work and had a lot of drive. And he liked what he did and was good at it, but it didn't fuel him in the way that it fueled me. So the second big choice that we made, frankly, was to embrace our difference in that way and have him, he decided, we had decided that he would stay home after our second child, Maggie, was born. So we made that decision when I was pregnant with my second child. And we thought we would try it for a year. Well, as you know, it went pretty well for us. We had two more kids after that, more and Fiona, and Terry stayed home from that point forward. So we made a choice to embrace my career and to embrace what he wanted to do as well, which is frankly to retire and be a fantastic Mm. father to our kids. I mean, my daughters have, and my son, all have so many things in their lives that are so special and unique because of that arrangement. But that wouldn't be for everybody. And I don't think we even knew at the time. We didn't know it would be like a long-term thing or how it would really feel. And there's still gender paradigms even today about roles of men and women and work and in, in, you know, home life and whatever. But but that choice was a really, really important one. It kind of dovetails with realizing that about myself even when I was younger. And frankly, celebrating it. Because once we kind of got comfortable with like, okay, yeah, you're just like super type A, and you're just going to want to work forever. And I actually really yes. like being
0: home with the kids. Like once we embrace that, it just everything worked great right. <laughs> completely. And you have yeah. this incredible family, incredible. I I'm proud of I love just being in the same room, whether it's you and Mora or Maggie or Fiona or Jack or Terry, or especially when, you know, Aunt Dolores is there, the, the energy of that and what you've created is palpable. It's nice of you to say that I'm proud. The second choice I made was to commit to a two way agreement. And now for me when i think about a two-way agreement and this was a two-way agreement between me and my sister way back when when i think about a two-way agreement i think about the construct of two people or two entities coming together to give and to receive with a like-minded objective of bringing each other up (laughs) you know like this is we're in this together there's boundaries and we're in this together when i did commit to that agreement for the first time for me that commitment fueled my transformation from i have to do these things to i want to do these things and that really directed a lot of my choices then moving forward so when i think about two-way agreements we enter into them all the time what's a two-way agreement that you've Just one of the two-way agreements that you've entered into, and just tell me about. Well, one I probably I
1: probably got into a little bit already, but I'd say there's really two answers to that. One is what I just described with Terry and I. I mean, that was kind of an unscripted two-way agreement that we had to figure out over time how that was going to work. You know, what are the what are the expectations? What are the rules of the road? I think at the beginning, you know, we thought maybe it would be for a year, but I could tell we both could tell it was working well. So we made another agreement that we would continue to do that. And there were still people that would be like asking Terry all the time or asking us, oh, so is he gonna you now is Terry gonna go back to work and you're gonna stay home? I'm like, no, this is working great. But oh, well, you know, we had to figure out the roles of how to think about, you know, parenting and especially as you go through the many ages of kids, right? So there was a lot of Continual two-way agreement. I think in our marriage, especially with our unique situation with Terry, staying home, me with the kids. The other two-way agreement. Okay, this might not be a fair answer, but I'm gonna say anyway. Give it to me. Is with myself. Is the two Uh the two two selves of myself? Because you know there is um, when you get caught up in a career that you know again the flip side of ambition and drive could be that that becomes. Your sole focus, and I'm competitive, so it can be pretty easy to get into a world where you're focused only on how fast can I progress, or how far can I make it, or do I look, you know, am I the person that looks like they're going to be whatever? So I literally had to make a deep agreement with myself that I would never trade off being the best mother or partner I could be as well as driving my career. And so there were times that I took risk in my life to say, okay. Like maybe at a certain time in the '80s, right when FaceTime in the office was all important, you know. Yes. Like I would, I I would say, you know, I and I was competing with people that maybe I was pretty. I had my first child when I was 29. So Jack, I was 29 and I had Jack, and that was. In that world, young. You know, most of my peers thought that was like, you know, the fact that I got married at 23, people thought that was really kooky, right? So I was living kind of a parallel life, to, or a different life than others from the start, at least my business career, where most people were getting married later and having families later. So people that could stay at work till seven o'clock at night. And I made an agreement with myself that I was going to create my own rules. And if it didn't work, and it's not gonna work. And so that would be things like, you know, yes, I'm leaving at five o'clock or I'm leaving at 5.30 or whatever. I'd be home, if I wasn't traveling, trying to be home every night. And the kids still remember walking down the street when I was getting off the 6.15 train, meeting me on their little bikes and stuff. And then everything that was in my brain that was stressing me out from the day, because let's face it, everybody has stressful days in their career. I would literally try to open a little door in the back of my brain and put it in there and close the door for the night because, or at least for a few hours, okay, because bringing my baggage in about what might have ticked me off that day or what was on my mind that was hard, first of all, it wasn't helpful and wasn't relevant to Terry or to anybody else in the household at the time, right, because they're like, whatever, you're just home, so I made it agree with myself to just have the backbone to do what I thought I needed to do to be good at both or as good at both as I could be. Now, you know, I often then would, you know, we'd go through the dinner routine and the bedtime routine, yes. everybody's in bed, and then Quite often I would then fire up the laptop and be working, you know, from nine to eleven or something. It came in handy that I didn't I needed like six hours of sleep a night for a lot of my life. So that, that came in handy. Wouldn't recommend it for everybody. I also made an agreement. I tried really hard not to send emails to people that time of night. but I figured out a long time ago how to save them as drafts and send them or schedule them to go the next day. So the other part of that agreement was to not impose on other people just because this works for me. And I've really tried, you know, throughout my career for anybody working for me to try to meet them wherever they are. And in fact, I'd say post you know, COVID, I mean, listen, I've been doing, I was job sharing, I was telecommuting, I was working part-time. I've done so many things 30 years ago that now are relevant again. And I think that's the way to get the best out of everybody is if somebody's productive and they're delivering the goods, but let them flex their lives to meet their needs. But that was something I had to agree with myself to do. And keep oh my myself- gosh.
0: I mean, it is it, i mean and the agreement with yourself with myself i mean i feel like that's the agreement that i let fall yeah yeah well and you awesome. know and when i would travel like you know especially at mcdonald's i'd be
1: traveling yes. you know world cities yeah, around the world. but i would never stay an extra day i mean i would love to stay a couple of days in paris Yeah, right? mm-hmm. i'd like to run so best way for me to see a city when i was traveling is get up in the morning and run and see like wonderful cities mm-hmm. but just get home and and trish you'll you'll appreciate this because so often People ask women executives questions that they don't ask men ever, hardly yeah. ever, about like what was, you know, what's like being working on and did you feel guilty and questions that, they, you know, are put on women. But at one point, I asked one of my daughters, Maggie, when she was, you know, in her early 20s and very wise, and I just, hey, let me ask you a few questions about what it was like for you. And she's like, what do you mean? I go, well, growing up and, you know, I, your mom was working, I was home. She's like, okay, I was, you know, I was traveling a lot sometimes, on mm-hmm. a Sunday night. She's like, wait, stop hold the presses. Why are you asking me these things? Because it seems like you're here all the time. Like, why, why is this question in your head? I was like, well, that's a gift. And I look back and that was a two-way agreement I made to myself. I didn't know that it would possibly end up with my kids feeling like this is normal. What, you know, nothing to look at here. (laughs) This is great, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad I made that agreement because it was me having to work a lot to make that work.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you fueled that agreement. You did it. I tried the best I could. <laughs> yeah. I remember you telling me that story about Maggie because I didn't try I've never traveled internationally, but you know, you know through my yeah. career I was on the pre, you know, pre-COVID I was on the road all the time. Remember I used to go to San Diego all the time, Boston to yeah. San Diego. I was like, "Oh, my kids are they always going to think I'm gone? I'm never there on picture day. Joe's always sending me a picture of picture day." you told me that story and I've kept that in my mind because I do believe that Lily and Sam will remember how well, cool and now that they're I getting am. older, now they're getting older, you can see how yeah. they're proud
1: of what you've done and what you do. And this is just kind of normal for them. But I think unfortunately it's a it's a tape that gets played mm. about women and motherhood and working that we
0: have to just kind of push aside, I think. The third choice I made was to build trust. And now for me, this was a big deal, a big deal. And I learned that I had to build trust in myself before I could inspire the trust of others. Has there ever been a time where you didn't trust yourself?
1: Yeah, I don't know exactly how to answer that one. I'll be honest. I'm not sure. I mean, there's always things that I feel like I could be better, doing better, but probably the, maybe the most relevant answer I can give to that would be, this goes way back to when I first started my career. Maybe it was trust, belief in myself, you know, belief that I could actually be successful. So when I started, you know, everything I've done, I feel like I've been not exactly on the spec that was written for a given job or a given, you know, step. And so I had to build trust in myself that I could accomplish things and I could get them done, even if it didn't seem, like it was going to work. So when I was started at Quaker Oats in 1984, I was hired there out of undergraduate school, and I didn't know until a few months into it that I was the first person they ever hired into this marketing training program—the first one who hadn't gone to an Ivy League undergraduate school. Okay, so Quaker did is Quaker is a wonderful training ground for marketing and consumer package goods. They would hire based in Chicago, so it was like a, I was went to University of Illinois at Chicago. I somehow got my resume to somebody who was willing to look at it and give me a shot it, because of my academics and my leadership and the fact that I paid 100% to put myself through college. I think that was, I didn't realize how noteworthy that was. Anyways, mm-hmm. so they were hiring, say, 30 people a year in marketing, 25 out of top business schools starting as marketing assistants, and five or so out of undergraduate school starting as marketing associates, we were called. And we went through like a longer training period. Anyways. Was hiring the marketing associate program. And that was the one. So when people would say, So, oh, great, you're a marketing associate, where'd you go to school? Expecting me to say Harvard, Princeton, Yale. Wow. Um, I said University of Illinois at Chicago. And people would be like, a little perplexed. And I thought, Oh, yeah, UFC, I've heard of that. Oh! <laughs> and it, that happened multiple times. And it was kind of like unclear. And then I looked around and I realized that, like, on the brand I was on, you know, the assistant brand manager had a Harvard MBA. and the, other assistant brand manager had a Kellogg MBA. And this person went to Brown, this person went to Princeton. So nothing against any of those great schools. Frankly, when I was starting, when I put my applied to a college, I didn't even know the schools existed, right? And we were completely self-funded, self-directed because my parents didn't go to college, right? And they didn't know. So anyways, but once I realized that, I was like, holy cow, they made a mistake. This is never going to work. i <sighs> never going to be successful. And But I worked my butt off. I worked my butt off and I, and I tried really hard to learn, you know, to learn and to fit in, but also what I brought to it, this is where I kind of learned to trust in myself is that you know, I brought something that not everybody had, which is a background that made me maybe a little more approachable, a little more humble, a little more willing to roll up my sleeves, you know, and kind of dig in to different functions and learn from people versus coming in with all the answers. But, but I didn't trust myself that I could succeed. I had to, I, and, I'm, and it was a pivotal thing. And then, but that experience helped me in others, because there's many situations still that I'm in where it's like, do I trust that I'm going to be able to say the right thing in this meeting or get right. in here, you know? So it's an ongoing thing.
0: It's an ongoing build. It's an ongoing build. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, and you know, when you were just getting in there and doing the work and, and building that trust, I'm a huge believer in do the little things do the little things great like people ask me how did you i i don't i have no idea i did the little things and then one day something great happened and i think about that with you you know just yeah i mean i kind of use
1: my intuition to figure out that like if i could do things that help me stand out like take initiative or ask questions about things that maybe people were afraid to ask you know things like that that actually do are small things that help others around you or above say oh this is somebody who's really engaged they're thinking maybe a level ahead of where they are, um, you know.
0: But anyways, so I did have to learn how to trust myself that I could succeed. So now I want to ask another, a different question around trust: is how do people inspire your trust?
1: Hmm, that's a great question.
0: Um, well, you know, I'd say a couple
1: things. One is just authenticity and showing up and being the same person every time is helpful. Um, Secondly, it being constructive and collaborative instead of destructive or finger pointing. You know, I don't trust when I'm in an environment and people are bad mouthing somebody else. And I think they think maybe that's going to, I'm going to find that interesting or helpful. I know right away not to trust the person because if they're bad mouthing so-and-so, then they're probably bad mouthing me or everybody else. So I really, to me, I think it's just not that everything has to be perfect or everybody has to be nice, but I think when to build trust for me is just authenticity coming at things from the perspective of being constructive and positive even in tough situations um and collaborative and those are those are the kinds of people that i find at trust very rapidly it's great yeah
0: all right the fourth choice and this is where i'm going to circle us back to yeah. my aunt eileen too but so the fourth choice i made was to create community and and i will do a little bit here of getting people up to speed here with what you said at the beginning. When I, when I grew up, we moved around. I mean, I went to 12 different schools before I ever graduated high school. So I didn't know what community was. I didn't know what community was. I didn't know what belonging was. And in my thirties, I had created more professional success. You and I have talked about this for me than I could have ever imagined. But then I looked around and I realized that I was friendly with everyone, but I was friends with no one. And so I intentionally took the steps to create my own community and create my own belonging. Um, Your mom was a big part of that when she invited me to come in to this family I didn't know. And she invited me to, to be a part of this community and I accept that invitation hmm and so she created this sense of community and belonging for me with family that i didn't even know existed yeah i i mean that is okay so let me put that aside for a second i want to dive in a little bit with you on has there been a time where you didn't feel like you belonged now you already gave one example so that just right The Quaker example, fresh out of school, that is like, to me, that sense of do I belong and how do I belong and I don't really belong here. Is there another time, any other times that you have felt like you haven't belonged and then how have you created that belonging?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I do think that um, professionally and personally, there's examples, you know, professionally, and this is something I've helped other people learn, which is that sometimes when you move from one company or industry to another, There's a lot of great things about being able to apply what you've learned and bring and break paradigms and do things differently, Um, but you don't always know what you're stepping into, and coming in from the outside, coming into a company from another company, especially at a fairly senior level, especially as a woman, you can you can all of a sudden realize that people are like asking questions like, why are you here? And putting up barriers to your success. And that happened, I mean, I'll be frank, McDonald's is a great company, so I don't mean to like criticize it, but when I went from PepsiCo to McDonald's back in 2005, I went in at a very senior level, and I didn't realize until I got there that that was kind of rare, especially a woman coming in at the exec, executive vice president level, especially with a totally different industry and company. And it was... I I didn't realize, frankly, I had a target on my back. And and, and there's people who often want the job that you're going in for. So this is what I try to counsel when people are thinking about moving jobs. It's like, okay, just know when you do this, like A, what they're saying is gonna be your career path, may or may not. Um, There's gonna be at least one or two other people there who thought they should have had the job that you just got. And you're coming in from the outside. It doesn't mean you won't be successful, but don't be naive about it. So I think for me, I had to... It, it kind of hurt when I realized that I was being judged, and I didn't think I was going to be successful in the first year. and i didn't I didn't see that coming. You know, everything I'd done in my career to that point I'd earned through merit, and it wasn't like anybody gave me anything. Quaker and PepsiCo both were very gender diverse companies years ago. So I never felt like I was chosen because I was a woman or anything like that, Come into a new environment, and you know I just didn't really feel like I belonged, and I wondered if I had made a mistake. But then I also, because back to choice one, you know, embrace my drive. I'm also competitive and I'm like, I am not gonna fail. I'm gonna figure out what does it take. So I was a CMO there for five years, a Global Chief Market Office, that's a long time. And I was really proud about one, one big accomplishment in particular, which is from day one. I knew that if we had an opportunity and frankly, I think a mandate to improve the healthfulness of the products that were sold to kids, particularly the Happy Meal. So how we marketed and the nutrition, right? So, but it took a lot to even get any momentum towards developing and testing that theory. And ultimately, ultimately, it was launched globally. So globally now, you know, the health of this meal is quite different than it was several years, so yeah. I'm proud of that. But I had to go back and learn a whole different way to belong, a whole different way to sell a story, to, to, to bring people along and to, and to earn trust. So it was kind of a painful lesson. It was really worth it though, because now I feel like it gives me different ways to think about, environments or like i said help people as they're thinking about you know risks they might take in their career you have to have a pretty tough inner inner self if you end up in a place where you're going to feel like you don't belong for a while you know the second place is that you know we, we kind of talked a little bit about this but the the working mom thing you know i mean so many young parents i know and it's not just men and women but there's still gender paradigms and it's like you know many of the communities we live in we may not we may be in the minority by being this, you know, a working, a professional mom, not always depends on where you live. Right. But I did feel sometimes like, you know, at the kid's school, like I was an outlier and, you know, I just didn't feel, I wasn't part of like the social community and neither was Terry. Cause he just, is, he didn't want to, like, he's like, I don't, it just wasn't his thing. He was happy doing his own thing. So I felt at times, like we didn't really belong at times in the community as much as I would have wished, because I felt like, people looked at me like, Oh, there's the working mom. And, and I don't know, sometimes I almost felt like I learned what I learned is that sometimes moms who stay home are feeling like moms who work are judging them. And when I realized that I was like, wow, that's interesting because my husband stays home full time, full stop. I'm not, I love that. I embrace that. Like, I mean, if you have the ability and the desire to have a parent at home, it's like any model that works for a family is my kind of model, right? So both working you know, one person working, one not. I mean, the hardest thing would be is to be a single parent, right? So I looked at it like any model works, but I kind of realized that there's some paradigms. So I had to, what I did is I found the other moms who got me, you know, and there were definitely, you know, a few that really would, um, you know, they loved what I did and they would say, hey, okay, so it's, you know, parent-teacher conference day. I bump into a friend, uh, still a friend today in the hallway. She's like, I know you don't know where the room is. I'm just gonna take the paper for you. I'm like, yeah, thank you, I don't. So, you know I so i honest. kind of figured out how to belong. and its it seems kind of silly that as an adult woman, you could feel that little bit like, are we in high school? where like who's in the club and who's not? But I, I have learned, you know it's it's a two-way street. I think is if you're not around the school as much, you know part of it's on you to figure out how much you want to be included and how do you find ways to you know show up um,
0: but you know, but also find the people that accept you for who you
1: are. Yeah. It's not that hard.
0: yeah, right. and it is. and I feel the same way that it's to belong, it, it, it requires action on your part and action on their part. You know, it is, it's a, right. And the thing, one of the things that i learned through my experiences in order for me to create community and belonging, maybe if I shorthand it is you, you get it by giving, you know, you get by giving and I find that in you. I Mina, mean, you are a giver. You give your time, you give your wisdom, you give your, you know, yourself. Is there just, I don't know, is there a story or a time that you could think of that you're like, yeah, I gave and here's what I got back?
1: Well, maybe at kind of the most macro level, we'll go back to family, uh-huh. because that's what
0: you and I have in
1: common. Yeah. And, and I would say the older I got, well, first of all, as we started to raise our kids, you know, we we both turned to both come from big families and thought it would be kind of cool to have, you know, I had siblings in the area, he has siblings in the area, they had kids and and we really wanted to create an environment where our kids had family around them. But it is, as I continue to get older is when I realized how important that was. Things like, you know, bringing in cousins that we maybe hadn't ever met or known. And now that if we go full circle to my kids being adults, I feel like they've got cousins all over the the country but i would do you know that they're close to and and terry's mom unfortunately just passed away recently and all 13 of her grandkids came back each one of them felt a very close relationship to her but even like to each other whether it's cousins on terry's side of the family or my side of the family and that was because we worked hard to create that you know i would do what i call the quarterly birthday parties because there was too many kids to have individual parties so every few months you know, just see as many families that could come over would just do something outside in the backyard. It sounds simple, but that is creating it. It's work. I mean, if you don't work at it, it's not not going to happen, you
0: know. And I got to give one more little story and then I'll move us on because I know I I always look at time of when you gave and I'll say what I got and I'll bring up the airplane story. So we had met, we had met maybe a couple of months before, six months I don't know because of of anti-lean we're I'm on a plane flying somewhere you're on the same plane flying somewhere you're sitting in another seat and we look and we look. it was I in coach you were first class is that no,
1: right? no. <laughs> I remember you walking past me though I do I was, I was probably like in after. bulkhead
0: because I always like try yeah. to maneuver bulkhead and we went we went yeah and then you exchange seats with somebody and we sat down and for three hours and that is when you became my friend yeah and the crazy thing about that we would not have we would have been
1: strangers on that plane had we not my <laughs> moms that's the craziest thing of all yeah
0: and yeah. from that moment just like the story that you gave with your you know birthdays and families and bringing cousins together yeah. you always invite you Always included me as a part of the community, and I always accepted. And yeah, this really you always make an effort. I mean, you really
1: do make the effort to be part of the broader family community, which yeah. would take-
0: I want it. You know, I yeah. I I want like now I know I know that the I know what it feels to not belong, and now I know what it feels to belong. It's so cool. And so well, and again, I would just say, and then my daughters look up to you as a role model <sighs> in business.
1: I mean, that's the kind of thing we've got like three generations, yes. you know. Like you're a lot younger than me, you know, they're they're in their 20s, mid to late 20s, and they can connect with you as they have.
0: It's just really cool. Really cool. So those were the four choices that I made that led me to my fifth choice. Now, f- for me, these choices were linear, they were sequential, but that's just because that was my journey. It, you know, I I couldn't get to my fifth choice, which was to embrace what I believe is a boundless capacity to love. I believe we all have an innate boundless capacity to give love and to receive love. And I wasn't prepared to make that choice until I went through my own journey. When I think about choosing to love, the distinction that I wanna make is love as an emotion and, and love as an act, as an action. So I just want to get into this a little bit.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: And maybe start with, is there a time that you, that you'd like to share where you chose to give all of your love? That is the distinction also that I want to make is the choice to give it all or to receive all the love back. Trish, trash, tres.
1: This, I know. Is, just like, uh, this yeah. is a tough territory for me. Okay. Can I just be really frank? Yes. Which is that the word love is a charged word. And and I'm I i will not go too deep into this because then it truly will be a therapy session. But mm-hmm. I, you know, there's I didn't even get comfortable using that word until I frankly got invo- got into Terry's family. Terry is somebody who his family, like you go out the door to the grocery store, it's like, oh bye, I love you. Like that's and, and I honestly in our culture of my family that is just not what we did. Yeah. And I and I there's probably a lot of reasons why. And so when I think about it like in the business context, too, it's just like it makes me uncomfortable to use that word. So I'm embarrassed to say that because it's just funny. Cause like anybody who knows me has watched us be like, Yeah, she doesn't talk about love. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're like and I also and I'll be honest with you, I'm also like not a great physical like hugger. Like i my own family, that's different. But like in the business world. It's funny, but people know I'm just a little awkward about that. And so I'm sensitive to these things because it's like, it's funny that I'm uncomfortable with the words and the actions. And yet, when I think about certainly in the broader family, I mean, there's nothing more important to me than my siblings, their kids, my kids, you know, all the extended family on both sides. I mean, that's where I've had my entire social life as an adult has really been more with family and giving them as much as I can, you know, in any way that I can. Uh, in the business world, what I would say is that probably the way that it plays out is maybe through more of the lens of just deep respect uh, for everybody and and treating people with honest respect. And you could then maybe make a map of that towards love, which I wouldn't necessarily do. But mm-hmm. I think what I learned in my life is that you know I've had every job from waitressing, you know, bank teller, Costco drug clerk, cleaning apartments, and I've done it all. And so I always felt like you know, if you could tap into the energy and the wisdom of folks who have those jobs, especially in certain industries, you could be a hell of a lot smarter and have more engagement than if you didn't. And so one of the things I'd say for sure at Ulta Beauty that I think is characteristic is that we made sure, I made sure that everybody who worked for me at the senior level shared the value of, uh, we need to listen to and trust and and respect the frontline. They're the folks that know the most about what's happening day in and day out. They're the ones that are interacting with our customers. And if we simply listen instead of shut down, if we simply you know trust and admire and respect instead of treat like you know just employees, then what what's possible, right? And I think for us that really became a fuel for you know us getting better at everything we did every day, including engagement. So the engagement scores that we have at Ulta are among the very top of retail companies. So you know one could say that's a love. I don't know if I'd use that word. In the I context. do. Right? You could, but I would say it's about just respecting people as humans and treating them with respect and authenticity, you know?
0: Yeah. And I, I appreciate your perspective so much on it too, because my guess is you're not alone either in, you know, especially at the executive level that you are, that you are at and you brought words to, you know, sometimes people will say, well, well, Trish, you talk about love because I do, uh, how does that manifest? How does that How do you see that showing up? How does that manifest? And the words that you just offered up, respect, trust, even you said collaboration, even when you were talking about um, how people inspire your trust. Yeah. Do I think about those things all in the spirit of how we show up as a human, with another human, with the intent of elevating that other person up Mm -hmm. and with the intent of giving, and I'll use the word, you know, giving love and it manifests all around us and in a whole bunch of, of different. Right.
1: Well, in the, in the, in
0: the lifting people up is a really
1: interesting way to put it too, Trish, is that there are small ways every day that you can do that. And and the more power, you have a lot of power to help people feel lifted up or pushed down all the time. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, if say we're doing like a Q&A session with our general managers from the store, when I first started, you know, we had a session and people started asking questions and most of the executives at that time were more in that classic mode of, I'm at the top of the organization, my job is to tell people, I have all the answers, you know. So if somebody asks a question, here's the answer or no, that won't work or here's why it doesn't work. And what we did is flip it around and just simply say, sometimes, not always, but like, tell me why you're asking or what do you think? Because what I found is that anytime somebody in a group is asking a question, they already have an answer. They already have a point of view. They're not just asking a question. So you can answer it, sure, but you could also learn something and make them feel more engaged by just simply saying, well, tell me more about why you're asking or what do you think we should do? Not to put people on the spot, um, but I found that that's a way to have people have voice and agency in 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 a place that, you know, they maybe wouldn't have otherwise, or certainly, when you're in a, a meeting or a boardroom. And if a colleague, um, you know, voices a point of view and you could tell they're maybe a little timid or maybe they're the only well, other woman in the group or some, you know, uh, you can reinforce that by saying, hey, just like Trish said, you know, let me build on that. That's a really good idea, Trish. And, you know, versus what happens sometimes is you might make a point, it doesn't get heard and somebody else makes a point and it gets heard, right? So there's ways that we can use our power to help people feel heard and respected all the time yeah. or the opposite. You know
0: Or the opposite, and and I'm just gonna keep powering through this, and I'll stop. The opposite yeah. is a choice to withhold giving mm-hmm. and receiving love, and just using my vernacular. Yeah. You know? And so, if we, you know, there are so many reasons why people me included, everybody, why choices are made to withhold or to, to not give our all in that way. You know, and and what what I propose to everybody that I'm thinking about and talking to and you who I who I do love, so put it at that, is what if what if each of us each day chose to show up with the spirit of I say give love and receive love. You say respect, trust, and honor. Yeah. If we just chose each day in every interaction with the person next to us to come from that place, what would that mean? <sighs> well,
1: that's very powerful thought. And I was just thinking, as you said this, I think it was kind of in my forties or so, someplace kind of middle of my career where it hit me that like, I don't need to compete with other people, particularly with other women. Like, actually, if I can, if there's other, you know, if I can be complimentary, legitimately so, of other people and lift them up, it's good for all of us, you know what I mean? And I started to feel this, cause I wasn't always getting that. I was in situations maybe where there weren't that many women and then it became a competition. I was like, well, it doesn't have to be that, I don't really care, you know what I mean? And so once I, you know, I kind of saw how much you can lift people up by just including or respecting or, or, you know, calling them out publicly in in a positive way. And I guess the last thing I'd say on this is that one of the things I'm most proud about Ultra Beauty is that we've had great results, great results, but also have a great culture and a culture that is one of listening and respect. And I think that's a good case that it's possible. They don't have, I mean, it wasn't like, it's not like every day is perfect or every day is easy, everybody gets along all the time, everything's perfect. But if you can generally lead and, and get results that are great, but also lead through a lens of humanity and people feeling good about where they are every day. To your point, what's possible? Because the alternative is, you know, your work is pretty much where you spend your time. And if you feel like crap every day, you go in, you not trust, you know, you feel not trusted or seen or insecure.
0: That's not healthy. So I believe with my whole heart that when we choose to give our love in that way respect and honor and trust and when we choose to receive what others want to give back to us that that not only creates enduring success but it helps to fuel the success of those around us and i mary thank you Yeah, i'm learning from you i mean i think you articulate it in a way that i wouldn't have but i think it's you're spot on absolutely right Thank you. So let's do more of that. (laughs) I know. And we're going to have, you and I are going to have a part two and part three and part four. Oh, yeah. This is an ongoing conversation. We just allowed others to be a part of this conversation today. Really true. Thank
1: you. That's really true. It's been so much fun. Thank you, Trish. Thank you for all you're doing.
0: Thank you for joining me for our Choose and Become interview series. You could find this episode and others at TrishKendall.com. Just go to TrishKendall.com backslash choose-become-interview-series. Or if you have a question or just want to leave a comment, email me trish at trishkendall.com.